Well, as we uh, get ready for uh, the sermon, a couple of announcements as the screen is going up. First of all, next week, I need to tell you that Sherry and I and the, and the family are going to be gone. We're going to, my girl's uh, spring break is coming up. My mother-in-law in Oklahoma is having a procedure in Oklahoma, so Sherry wants to be with her. So we're going to take our family, and we're going to dr- drive on a 10-hour uh, road trip. You can pray for us, <laughs> right? Four girls, for those of you who don't know me, I've got four daughters, all A names, so we call them the A team. So we need the A team to behave in the car on the way down to Oklahoma. But as I'm gone, you know, one of, one of my philosophies in ministry is really raising up preachers, really mentoring men and spreading, just like Paul told Timothy, take the message and give it to other men who can also preach and witness and everything like that. And if there's a man in our church who feels like he might be called to preach, I want to empower that and get out of the way. And so I've been working with a man, Greg Hill, who you saw get, get up and give announcements. Didn't he do a good job? Don't you want to hear that guy preach? Yes. He'll be, I've been working with him on his sermon. Every Thursday morning we've been getting together, and he's going to come, and he's going to stand up here, and he's going to preach a sermon. So pray for him. Come to church next week. Support him. Pray about that. I know he's going to do a great job. Um, and he's not quite a Jedi, but he's like a Jedi knight. You know what I'm saying? So he's almost there. And uh, so really support him and be praying uh, for me as we're away, and then we'll come back, and that'll be really great. Okay? Now here's the other thing. In two and a half years of ministry since I've been here, I have never not had some time to prepare the sermon that I had in mind to prepare. But this week, I don't think it's because of negligence. It might be, but because of appointments and meetings and meetings and meetings, and every night there was a meeting and every day there was appointments, and I literally ran out of time to prepare a really good message from Psalms like I had prepared. So in those situations, what we do is we go, well... You can either hear a really bad, unprepared sermon, right? Or you could hear a message that maybe I've been working on in another context. So we're going to leave the series on Psalms and the anatomy of soul, and we're going to go to another message because Pastor Josh ran out of time, which is like the first time that that's happened in years. I cannot remember ever doing this before. So we're going to make this up as we go. Doesn't that sound fun? I love it. Spontaneity, baby. And so that's what we're going to do. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2, and that's where we're going to hang out. We're going to go to John chapter 2, and I've just been kind of working on this passage for another series way in the future, and so um, I just was like, you know what, that's what I want to talk about. John chapter 2. And this is a great, great story in the Gospel of John. Famous story. It's where Jesus turned water into wine. And we go to the end of the story. Let me read the end before we go back to the beginning. Sometimes I like doing that with books. You read the end of the book before you read the beginning. And so let's look at how this ends. John chapter 2, verse 11. It says, This, the first of his signs... Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the first of his signs. Now, in the Gospel of John, there are seven miraculous signs that John records, and this is the first of them. And the reason why he calls miracles signs is because the miracles that Jesus did pointed, they were signs to something beyond themselves, to a deeper meaning. And so this story that we're, that we're talking about, water to wine, John calls the first of his signs. 
Now, we might think that that means chronologically ever in his ministry, he's never did a miracle before the water to wine, which could be the case. But John might have a double meaning with that word first, because in Greek, the word first means primary. So it doesn't always refer to like chronologically the first, but like first in importance or first in weight. And so when I, as I've studied this, what I've begun to understand is that Jesus turning water into wine maybe wasn't his most powerful miracle, but it might be the miracle that symbolizes his message the best. It summarizes the Christian gospel the best. It is the primary uh, expression of what he came to do, what he means, what Jesus is all about. So when we look at the first or the primary miracle of water to wine, what we're studying is what really is Christianity? What really is Jesus all about? Why did he come? What does his ministry signify? And that's an important question because a lot of people define Christianity in a lot of different ways. A lot of people look at Jesus in a million different ways, and it's important that we return back to the Gospels and say, yeah, but what does the Gospel say that Jesus was about? What does the Gospel say that that Christianity is all about? And, And so the water to wine is a great place to go when we look at the sign or the miracle that points to the message that is Christianity. What are we to be about as believers? What are we to be about as a church? If, if you're not a believer, what is it that Jesus is asking you to believe today? What is it that God is calling you to believe? Maybe some of you are interested in becoming a Christian, but you're not. You're not sure whether you are a Christian or not. Uh, today, you should be, after this miracle, talking about it. You should be able to say, no, I am in, or I need to get in, or I want to get in. I want to be a believer. What is the Christian message? And so in understanding that kind of probing question, we go back to the beginning of the story. And we go back to verse 1. And look at uh, chapter 2. And here's the occasion. Let's talk about the occasion of the first sign, this water to wine. Uh, Verse 1, it says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. We might note that it's a good idea to invite Jesus to our weddings. Amen? (laughs) That was a good idea to invite him. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I've done a lot of weddings, and I've married a lot of people and some crazy people. I've seen some liquor flask, and I've I've married, like, uh, bikers on Harleys in the middle of parks. And I've I've married people where they brought up the ring on on a pillow on top of a dog. Like, I've done a lot of things. And I don't care what goes on on a wedding. You can do all that stuff. You can come in on a Harley with a little dog. You can dress in jeans. You can put on a tux, but listen to me. You need to have Jesus at the wedding. Now, if you don't have Jesus at your wedding or you got married and you didn't get married with Jesus there, that's okay because you can still invite Jesus into your marriage. Can I get an amen? And it's really encouraging to know that the one who is at this wedding is also the one that repairs weddings. That is the foundation of, of marriage. That is the foundation of human relationships. That's a really key point. But I get, I'm kind of getting away with what I meant to talk about. See what happens when I don't prepare? Okay. He's at a wedding. Jesus is at a wedding. That's like the coolest thing ever. And when you look at this in the full context of John chapter 2, there's two stories in John chapter 2. There's a story of Jesus turning water into wine, 
But then the second story at the end of John 2 is when Jesus goes into the temple with a whip and he begins whipping people and overturning tables. Do you all know that story? Listen to this. Jump down real quick. John chapter 2 and look at verses 13 and following. It says that the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. Love this Jesus. He's got teeth. Verse 16. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now here's the thing. John writes things not in chronological order, but in theological order. And in one story, he turns water into wine at a very ordinary occasion of a wedding. But in another context, in religion, he brings a whip and he overturns tables. I like to refer to John chapter 2 as the wine and whip sermon of Jesus. You know, Jesus is full of grace and forgiveness, but he's also full of truth, don't you know? Jesus is full of love, but he's full of justice, don't you know? And what's interesting is that it's almost as if John wants us to see this little itty-bitty wedding in a little itty-bitty town. Cana was kind of like one of those bodunk towns in Oklahoma where tumbleweed kind of comes through. Little itty-bitty town, no, hardly anybody there, you know? Very insignificant place. You would, it's like least likely place where God in the flesh would show up is in little Cana, you know what I mean? Like, why would God go there, you know what I mean? Uh, And so what we're supposed to do is see this little itty-bitty occasion, and the shadow is the big temple, the big religious complex, the big spectacular religious place, right? And if we were to ask, where would Jesus take wine? We'd say, well, he would go to the religious people. He'd go to the people who look good, who had their big fancy church building, who had their steeples and all of their gold and their big, you know, hats. You know what I mean? Like, Jesus would take wine there, but he would take the whip to the regular people in Canaan, whip them around and beat them up. But you see, it's the opposite. And if you ask me, what is Christianity? I mean, what really, what is the good news of Jesus? Here's the good news. Jesus didn't come for strong people. Jesus came for weak people. Jesus didn't come for people who got it all together. Jesus came to people who can't even afford to keep wine at the whole party. Jesus didn't come for people who look good or have it all together. Jesus came for the people who are barely making it. Jesus, see, Jesus is God saying, you know what? I know what this world is. I know this world is jacked up. I know that this world is filled with sorrows and pains and griefs and evil and injustices. And I know this world is filled with people who are decayed, who have problems, who are empty. I know that. And the reason why I came is not so you could look at me and say, oh, no, Jesus, come. I've got it all together. I came so that you could say, I really need you because all I've got in my life is water and I need some wine. The gospel is about the strength and the power of God in weakness. Christianity is about, is about Jesus coming to the meek and the humble, those who are poor in spirit, those who realize that they have desperate needs. But for those who stand up tall, whether irreligious or religious, I've got this thing all figured out, man. I've got this, look at my business, look at my church, look at my clothes, look at my car, look at my house, and look at all that stuff. See, Jesus is going to bring a whip to you. But for those of us who humble, And we understand we're weak. 
and we understand we need God, Jesus came for us and he says, I have wine for you. I have grace for you. I have love for you. That's what the message of the Christianity is all about. In the shadow of the temple, Jesus goes to, goes to Cana. Jesus goes to the small wedding party. Jesus goes to the place where they don't have enough stuff and they don't have enough money to even have a real wedding. I mean, what's the average amount of money that we spend on weddings today? It's like, I think last time I looked, and it's like 10 years ago for a really old sermon. I did research like in the 90s on this. And it was $15,000, right? Average American. I mean, we are pouring money into these wedding occasions. I always tell young people who I marry, listen, it's not the first day of your marriage that counts. It's the last day of your life in marriage that counts. Amen? We spend so much time, we think about that wedding. These people couldn't even afford to get wine through the week. And that's where Jesus is. Jesus is, is where things are running out. And you know what? Sometimes we feel insignificant. Sometimes we feel small. Sometimes we think God would never use me. I am so small and insignificant in the whole cosmos of things. I'm like a little blip. I'm like a little dot. And you know what? You're exactly the stuff that Jesus can work with. Jesus can work in small people. Jesus can work in small churches. Can I get an amen? We're a mega church, man. We're big time. You want to know why we're big time? Because we believe in Jesus. We're big time because Jesus works in our life, in our community. We don't have to be big and fancy to feel important or to feel like God could work in us. God, if God shows up at Cana, well, then God can show up in East Peoria at Cross Point Church, even with tornadoes coming all around us. We don't define success the way the world does. We don't say, you know, well, success is, you know, being a big shot. We define success as God coming in, God showing up, God being our creator, our maker, our savior. I need God. And people ask me, well, you know, God's just a crutch for you. Amen, God's a crutch. I need God. I need Jesus to show up in my Cana. I'm nothing without him. If Jesus wouldn't have shown up in my life, maybe this is not the way it is with most of you, my life was so messed up. And if Jesus wouldn't have shown up in my little itty-bitty life, I might have been the biological reason why there's children in this world, but I don't know if I would have been a responsible father. I might have had women in my life, but I don't know if I would have been a faithful husband. Without Jesus, I was nothing. See, Jesus came in. Jesus showed up. And that is an awesome thing, that Jesus can work in little, itty-bitty, insignificant people like you and me. That is the Christian gospel. And that is a wonderful message. But listen, from the occasion, we go to the problem. When we go to verse 3, not only is this a, a small wedding party in a small town, but they, they have a problem. And the problem is they ran out of wine, which is a problem. Look at verse 3. It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? And you know that's exactly how he said it. You see, I know Jesus. <laughs> My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Now, the problem is they ran out of wine. Now, this is a great embarrassment. Now, we have to be sensitive in our culture. When I was growing up, in my family, there's alcoholism, right? And so we got to be very sensitive. And, you know, people in our culture kind of get upset about this story because of Jesus turning water to wine. And, of course, Baptists try to work with it. And they say, oh, it's just just grape juice, you know, that type of thing. It's It's like this ridiculous thing, right? Like in Proverbs, it says that wine exists to gladden the heart, okay? I don't think that's grape juice. Can I get an Amen. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. But, but look, look, here's the deal. I mean, if we have problems with alcoholism, we need to stay away from wine and alcohol. And I, I want to support that. If any of you are practicing sobriety, you're a recovering addict, okay? I get that. I've been to AA meetings. I know all about that because of my own background, okay? And I want to support you in that. But listen... The problem is not that God creates wine. The problem is is that human beings can take wine and get drunk with it. That's the problem. And so so the wine is not the problem. Alcohol is not the problem. The problem is, is human beings. So in normal circumstances, Jesus is okay with wine, and he's okay with an alcoholic wine as long as it's used responsibly. And, and Jesus is turning this water, and uh, the wine has run out, and that's a really bad thing, and it's really embarrassing for this culture to run out of wine. And, and Mary is freaking out, all right? Mary is freaking out, and it's likely, some scholars think, that Mary was, like, invited to take care of the food and the wine, and so she's feeling responsible for, you know, the food and stuff. And she comes up to Jesus, and she's like, look, dude, you are, like, the savior of the world. Like, Gabriel talked to me about you. All right, and when, when you, before you were even born, I knew who you were, and I treasured up those things in my heart from the time you were a little baby. I knew you were special, and you're the son of God. And here we are. Here's this young little couple, this <laughs> this young little couple, and they have run out of wine. And these people are about to flip out because people need their wine at the wedding party. And because I know you have the power, I need you to do something. And that's when Jesus, is like woman. Now, if I would have said that to my mom, uh-uh, uh-uh. My mom was just a little late. She's like four foot eleven, right? And she'd get mad. She'd grow. She'd like go six foot tall. Like she had blue eyes, blazing blue eyes that would shoot fire like Superman. You know what I mean? If I would have ever called her a woman, it would be done. I would not be here today. All right. But now, all joking aside, in the language... To call your mom a woman in this culture was actually a term of endearment. You might remember that when Jesus was dying on the cross, he said to her, woman, this is your son. He points to John. And it was a term of endearment. So it's not as aggressive as it sounds to our modern ears. However, it is a little bit of a rebuke because what he's telling her is, even though you gave birth to me, you cannot manipulate me because I did not come to do your will, Mary. I came to do the Father's will. It's very interesting. John wants us to make sure that we don't make too much out of Mary. You know, he never refers to her as Mary. In fact, John always refers to her as just the mother of Jesus. She's just another woman. And Jesus here is making sure that we don't make too much out of Mary. 
Jesus doesn't work with Mary to work mediation for you and I. Jesus came to do the Father's will. And guess what the Father's will is? To die on the cross for our sins, to defeat death, to deconstruct death and sin and human decay, to reconstruct a new identity, new humanity, a new world full of diversity, a kingdom with many people from every tribe, tongue, and language who will come together and worship God in a new kingdom. And so that's why he says, my hour has not yet come. In other words, my, what he means by hour, y'all might remember Winston Churchill. I love Winston Churchill. And Winston Churchill's biggest deal was this is our finest hour. When Britain was being attacked by the Nazis and they were throwing those bombs at them and London was getting destroyed and demolished and Winston Churchill would get on the radio and he would say, this is our finest hour. He sounded just like that, right? And what he meant was this whole thing that we're going through as a nation. This is our greatest moment. And Jesus is saying, me turning water to wine is nothing compared to my greatest moment. My hour has not yet come. And the hour he's talking about is the hour of his death, his substitutionary atonement for humanity. This is his greatest hour. In fact, if you go to John, take your Bibles and just go real quick over to John chapter 12. A few times, I don't have enough time to go to all the Bible verses, but a few times he keeps saying throughout John, and even in the Gospel of Mark, he says, my hour's not yet come. My hour's not yet come. This is not my finest hour. I know you're impressed with me right now because I'm walking on water. This ain't my hour. And then he says in John chapter 12, verse 23 and following, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see what he's saying? He's saying that his hour, his greatest miracle is being our substitution. That by his blood, there would be remission of sin. His greatest hour and miracle for us is dying in our place as our substitute on the cross. And if you ask me, what is Christianity? Christianity is the message of the cross. You have to look at everything through the optic of the cross to understand Christianity. And what the cross tells us is a few things. Number one, the cross tells us that we are really messed up. We're more, we're more messed up than we're willing to admit. If God has to become a human being and die for our sins on the cross, if God has to be murdered... On a cross for us to be redeemed, you understand that we are really messed up. We are beyond helping ourselves. We're beyond, like, you know, making ourselves better. Like, like we are in an impossible situation. And Jesus died because only that could redeem us. That's why we call it the good news. That's why we say we're not ashamed of the gospel. We're not ashamed of the message of the cross. We're not ashamed because God, in love came and died in our place. And so he's telling Mary, no matter what's about to, and she knows, he, she knows he's about to turn this water into wine. She knows it. That's why she tells the servants, whatever he says, do it. But he's reminding her, don't ever think that an answer to prayer about wine is why it came. It only signifies a deeper meaning. It only signifies a deeper miracle. And the deeper miracle is the message of the cross. That is the finest hour. That is our finest hour. As a church, that is what we are about. 
and the, and, the, and the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And you and I are called to believe that Jesus died in our place and that that is our greatest spiritual moment. The moment our, the, the eyes of our heart are enlightened and we can believe that Jesus died in our place, that is our finest hour. That is the greatest moment for any believer. And that's the moment for, if you're not a believer, that's the moment that God wants you to have. He wants to give you that. That's wine, see. That, that, and when you taste it, when you receive that sacrifice and that love, when you receive this love that's demonstrated in that why we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, when you receive that, that is like fine wine to the soul. That's like vintage like eternally vintage. There's no date on it. It's that good. That's the problem is the wine ran out. And, you know, that's the world. See, that's the problem. The world, all of its solutions, it's running out. Everything that the world gives us, it tastes good at first, but it ends up turning into water. Everything that we go to for our functional saviors, at first it seems like, oh, that's the thing that's going to save me. Oh, that's the thing that's going to do it. And at the end of the day, it runs out. Everything is running out. Even a good marriage, you run out of a good marriage, and you got to get restored, right? I mean, Sherry, when we first got married, she was like, he is a hunk. That ended really quick. Like, wedding night, done. Right? And the wine ran out. Even, other, even the greatest people in our lives let us down. They run out of perfection. They run out of quality. They run out. And everything the world gives you runs out. And here's the last thing that's running out. Time is running out. Everybody say time. Running out. Baby knows it. Baby's like, ah, oh, running out of time. My, my dad uh, was really good friends with this businessman who was wildly successful. I mean, like crazy, built an empire, businessman, dude, CEO, pragmatic, functional. I mean, get up at four and work and didn't take weekends off and the whole thing, right? Built this empire, rich. And I really loved that my dad knew him because we got some really cool like boat trips and stuff. But anyways... But he got older, and one time he went to lunch with my dad, and he said, I've been wearing the same watch. I've been wearing the same watch for years and years, an expensive watch. I spent a lot of money on this watch years ago. And just the other day, it started working backwards. And he said to my dad, I, I'm wondering if, and he wasn't a believer. He said to my dad, I wonder if God's trying to tell me that time is running out. And it is, even for the richest. I mean, you could, you'd be up on the mountain. You'd have the house that everybody wants. Everybody walks into your place. Ooh, your time's running out. Jesus comes and tells us your time is running out. What I have for you won't run out, but everything else that we go to, it's running out. That's the problem. The solution, you move from the occasion to the problem to the solution. Look at verse 6. It says, and this is really interesting, um, it says now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. 
And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, uh, literally the Greek should be like, have gotten lightheaded, Then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now, this is provocative because in verse 6, it talks about these six stone water jars through for the Jewish rites of purification. And you could write that that symbolizes the law of God. And in a Jewish household, there was all of these water pots for rituals and cleansings for religious purposes, and they represented the law of God. And the agreement that Jews knew that God had with humanity is that if you want to be right with me, you've got to fulfill the law in your life. You've got to be cleansed. You've got to cleanse yourself. You've got to follow the law. And sometimes when we realize that time is running out and when we realize we're empty and that the stuff of the world isn't really filling it, sometimes we turn to religion and we go to religion and we say, well, I'll be religious. I'll follow the law. And if I, if I follow the law, then I'll be made right with God. But you see, that's not Christianity. Christianity is not about the law because Christianity recognizes that the law cannot save human beings. In fact, if you look at the text carefully, it says that Jesus says, fill up the uh, stone water jars filled with water. And then in verse 7, or pardon me, in verse 8, it says, he says to them, now draw You could underline that word draw. Draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Well, that word draw means to draw from a water well. So this is really cool. So what's happening is over here, let's just imagine. All right, we use our imaginations. Over here, you got the the stone water pots, and they're for religious law stuff. And Jesus says, fill all those up to the brim with water. So they fill them up. And then he says, now go draw water out of the well. So they go over to the well, and they draw the water out of the well. Now, when I first read this story, I bet you did too. When I first read this story, I thought that they were taking cups, dipping it in the, in the pots, and then coming over, and it was wine. But that's not it. The water's just there, symbolically. The wine comes from another source. It comes from the well. And you're like, well, what's the significance of that? Well, the significance of that is that what Christianity is, Christianity is a new agreement between God and human beings. We call it the new covenant. And the old covenant couldn't do anything. And Jesus didn't come to make the old covenant do anything for us. Jesus came to bring a new agreement of grace. Jesus came to bring new life, not to improve our life, not to improve religion. Jesus came to give us a whole new created life in our hearts and in our minds. Does that make sense? It's a whole new source. You see, the law of God can only be so good to us. You know, it's kind of like the law of God can't change our hearts. How many of y'all break the speed limit? Don't, don't raise your hand. Don't do that. You're at church. Right? And the law, right? So the speed limit. There's the speed limit. It says, go this fast. And here in central Illinois, it's usually really slow. (laughs) Right? You're on a back road. There's nobody on that road. And it says, go 45. And you're like, bull. (laughs) 
I'm going to go 55. Of course, I never do that because I'm a pastor, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> you see, the law, it, it can tell me when I'm wrong, but it can't change my heart. It can't give me a desire to go 45 because I don't want to go 45. Right? I'm sorry, I jumped. My glasses are falling. Right? And the law of God's the same way. The only thing the law of God can do is say you're guilty. That's it. That's, it's a tutor. It teaches us you done messed up. Take any of the Ten Commandments. Take any of them. And in your heart, you have broken the spirit of the law. Yes, you have wanted to murder people at times. Yes, you have committed adultery in your heart at some point in time. Yes, you have coveted other things at some point. I mean, you've broken the law. And Jesus didn't come to say, well, go, I'm here. I'm going to be right by you. Fulfill the law. No, Jesus said, I'm going to give you something new. It's called a new covenant. And the key to the new covenant is this. Jesus gives us the miracle of new birth in our heart. That's the new covenant. We call it, as Christians, being born again. (laughs) We call it new desires, new loves. Before Christ comes into our life, our love is for ourselves at the contempt of God, and we are building the city of man, and the city of man is built for the love of man at the contempt of God, but there is a city of God that's, I'm quoting this from Augustine, there is a city of God, and it is built for love of God at the contempt of self because our hearts have been changed. Christianity is all about what you love, what you desire, what you're pleased with. And Jesus says, I've come to change your heart and your desires. Understand this. Because listen, there's a lot of Christianities out there, and they primarily address your will. That's, that's the law. They, they primarily they say, if you get better, then God will love you. But you need to get better. That's law. And Jesus said, that's just water in jars, man. That's, that's all that is. I came to give you wine. Wine that gladdens the heart. Wine that transforms your ability to change. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, you man of the law, you religious man. And what, John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about. John chapter 4, he comes up to the Samaritan woman. She's had five husbands. She's on her sixth husband. I mean, that's breaking American records. And and what what does he say to this Samaritan woman? He says in John chapter 4, verse 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. John keeps telling people, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you new desires, and that desire, from that desire, you're going to be changed, and you're going to want to do things differently. You're going to have new pleasures and new loves. You're going to build a city for God's glory out of your life at the contempt of self. So that's a new covenant. Another way to understand the new covenant and this message of Christianity is that Christianity is an inside-out message. See? Human transformation comes from the inside-out. Now, if you're irreligious, you believe that the way to be changed is from the outside in. You're saying, if I have the right stuff, if I have the right environment, if I have the right formulas, if I have the right, if I have the right self-help books, if I have the right approach to finances, from the outside in, I'll be a new person. 
Religion does the same thing. It's just like the world. Religion is just like your religious, secular perspective. As religion says, it's outside in. The way humans change is you got to follow the rules. And from the outside in, if you'll just be good, you know, my mom used to say to me, you know, <laughs> hope you're cool with this, but she used to say to me, get your butt to church and your heart will follow. That's a religious perspective. Sorry, mom. Sorry, mom, I love you. I love you, mom. She's probably listening online. That's a religious perspective. If I'll just follow the rules long enough, then I'll change, and I'll, I'll ultimately like them. No, no, no. The idea is bring your heart to Jesus. Surrender to Jesus now. Exchange your hard heart for a new heart that is, that is alive to God, that has the Spirit of God. That is the way that the gospel changes human beings. That's the way we become responsible fathers. That's the way we become faithful husbands. That's the way we are able to raise our children in love and discipline without frustrating them. That's the way we come to church and we worship in spirit and truth is with a new heart. Do you see that? That's water to wine. That's what it signifies. That's the sign. That's the message. Let me close it out and say, look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now you might be wondering, Josh, do you really believe in miracles? Do you really believe in a modern world? Do you believe in archaic, primitive ideas like miracles and the supernatural? Do you really believe that Jesus turned water into wine? And the answer is absolutely. And the reason why is because right there it says that the disciples realized that it's a miracle. He manifested his glory. And what they realized and what their worldview realized is that God is behind all of nature. That the ability of the wine to go, or the vine to go down into the ground, absorb water, bring it up, and produce fruit, that all comes from the Creator using the means of creation. The Creator uses all the laws of nature to bring about rain and sunshine. The, the, the Creator is behind everything. See, and that's our worldview. And even though he uses means like time and and processes, God is capable as the creator to forego that, to skip the means and to speed up the process and to take water and to make it wine because he's the creator. And when he did it, the disciples said, this is God. This God is here. The same God that we experience in the vineyard and we experience in a good cup of wine, the same God that we experience in, in a good meal and in love, that same God is here in the flesh and he's turned the water into wine. See, when we struggle with miracles in our belief system, it's not because we struggle with miracles, it's that we struggle with the idea of God. We don't believe in God. But as soon as we believe in an almighty God, a creator of heavens and earth, as soon as we have that presupposition, it's, of course it's possible that he can work miracles. Of course he can show up and turn water into wine. And so the disciples, they believed in him. You see, the message is, is that even though Jesus is fully human, Jesus is fully God, of course he walked on water. Of course he could stop a storm because he's God over everything. And he's God in the flesh. And he has that kind of sovereign power. And so, of course, they believe in him. And do you believe? And tell me, you know, you don't, you say, oh, I, no, man, no. 
You know, but you love. You love and you hate. And you hate injustice and you love justice. You have these relationships. You have these passions and these desires. And you're telling me that you don't think there's a God? Come on now. Of course there's God. And you're being called to believe in him. The disciples believed in him. And what's interesting is that they believed in Jesus in chapter 1. And for believers, let me just say this to you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know that you are to continually abide in your faith in Jesus. Every day, I believe in Jesus. We don't depend upon our faith yesterday. We don't depend on our testimony last year. We don't depend. You know, Jesus is not a tetanus shot. I got saved back at summer camp when I was seven. I'm good, man. I got fire insurance and everything. No, it, see, John is like, no, you keep believing in Christ. You keep following him. You know, it says here in verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. You know, they keep following him around. They're like, this guy's a big deal. I'm going to be wherever he's at. Wherever Jesus is at, I'm going there. Whatever Jesus says, I'm going to believe that. Christianity is an abiding faith spirituality. It's the perseverance of faith. We abide in our faith in Jesus Christ. So as we close out, the question for you is, are you empty? Everything's water. Does your heart need to be changed? Or maybe you're a believer, but you don't really believe. Your expectations of God are so low, you don't have high expectations that God will work in your small situation. You don't believe that God can come into your life And work through you and in and around you. He can and he will. Christ is with us. This is the message of Christianity. Let's pray. God, as we worship you, we thank you that this life means something. And even though there's fallenness and there's darkness, there's a light in the darkness. Father, it is your son. Jesus, we invite you. We invite you to our party. We invite you to our town, to our neighborhood, to our home, to our family, to our church. We want you to come and bring us the good taste of the new covenant. The taste of grace that gladdens the heart. We We invite you to come and change the desires of our heart so that our pleasures will change, our desires will change, our loves will change. We pray that you might forgive us. Forgive us for our weaknesses and our sins. But I thank you that even though we're in decay, Jesus, you came and deconstructed death. You deconstructed sin on the cross and you reconstructed a new creation. We thank you for the promises of 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. We thank you for this miracle of water turned into wine for ordinary people. For we are very ordinary. But you are extraordinary in your grace and your love. I want to invite you, if, if you've never received Christ and you feel like he's doing something new in your heart and your mind, I want to invite you to believe in him. It's amazing. The Gospel of John uses the word believe 79 times. He even said, I've written these things so that you might believe that Jesus 
is the Son of God. But in all 79 times that it says believe in Jesus, it doesn't say greatly believe, or it doesn't say abundantly believe, or it doesn't have, there's no adjectives. It's just simple faith in Christ, trusting in him. Have you trusted in him? Have you believed in him? And that's it. That's how you become a Christian. That's how you walk in the new covenant. That's, that is the new wine of God's agreement with human beings, is faith. Just say to him, I am more sinful than I thought. I'm worse off than I thought. I have no solutions. I have no more answers. You are the one. But you are more loving than I ever dared hope. I did not, could not imagine your love. It's so great. I believe you died for me on the cross. I believe you rose again on the third day. Come into my life. If you'll just cry out to him from your heart. And call on the name of Jesus, you will be saved. And you'll be just like this simple wedding couple. Simple, simple, simple. Jesus is sometimes way too simple for people. We want it to be complicated. We want want something spectacular. It's real simple. Simple people simply believing in Jesus. That's what saves. As we do that today, let's stand and worship him. And let's worship him and thank him for the cross, the finest hour of his life and the finest hour of the Christian gospel. Mm-hmm.